Good morning, church. Everybody still still awake? Still warm enough? Goodness gracious. I know we have a few snow lovers out here, probably disappointed that it's melting already. Wanted to get out there and hike in two or three feet of snow. Well, I'll happily keep this weather. Maybe you just take up a collection and send you to the UP or Canada or something. There's plenty of snow up there. But I'm kind of happy it's not icy and gross. Maybe better for all of us, safety-wise, if little else. So uh, we finished 1 Corinthians last week. You're following along and you're thinking, let me guess where they're going next. If you guess 2 Corinthians, you're right. Uh, it might seem very logical. Well, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, two letters back to back, but we were talking and I can't remember hearing a sermon series where these went together. They, in many ways, don't make, no, no, make no mistake, they're distinct books of the Bible. It's not like Corinthians part one and two, two separate letters. Uh, and the subject matter in some regards is different, but if we're still fresh coming out of the first Corinthians, you can see a lot of this connective tissue when Paul's writing this second letter sometime later, making references to a lot of the things that he talked about before, and kind of those same, uh, I guess we could say concerns or petitions that he made. Let's put it that way. So if you've got your Bibles, we'll be in second Corinthians. Uh, we're going to read the whole book. Uh, feel free to follow along, or you can just look on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace." I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. 
and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, transition here into 2 Corinthians, I hope that we can take the time that we've invested in your word, um, the study that we, we leverage that from 1 Corinthians as we move into this letter, and maybe see this, this, this letter in a new light with deeper understanding, Lord. Um, certainly not of our own capacity, but the understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit, Lord, as you open our eyes and, and change the meaning of Scripture for us in our lives. You bring it to light. You, you give it breath and life and capability beyond just words on a page, Lord. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, as we study this, what seems like maybe a simple opening uh, you know, chapter or an opening paragraph perhaps in a letter that Paul wrote, Lord, we know that this is divine scripture. It was breathed by you through Paul's hand. And help us to, to study this with the attention and um, minutia, I guess, that it deserves, Lord. Help us not to just gloss over it as, oh, it's the greeting. Let's go ahead and move on to the meat of this book, Lord. It's all great stuff. It's in your sons of my prayer. Amen. All right. So I titled this uh, sermon, Greetings. Can I see you in my office? And if anyone's ever worked somewhere, if you hear this, like when you walk into the, and your boss comes in and says, good morning, can I see you in my office? Nobody ever says, oh, they probably just want to say hello. Or, you know, tell me I'm doing a good job. That's, at least for me, that's generally not the first thing that comes to mind. Hey, greetings, I need to see you in my office. I mean, you're like, oh, what was it? Let's see, did I fail to lock up? Did I, you know, did, was there something missing or stolen? Did I screw up? What's going on? Am I going to be fired? And the panic sets in. Um, I call it this because this is sort of how this opening <laughs> section of the letter goes. <clears throat> it's, it's been a minute, but here's a letter from Paul. So these weren't like two letters in the same envelope, just so we know. These, this was written sometime later. Um, come to the small group and you know, make, maybe talk about the details of all the time. And we're not going to get into that here, but suffice to say, some time has passed, some things have occurred. And I love this intro because we just finished the first letter. So Paul in the first letter, if you remember, he talked about a lot of stuff, some encouragement, some rebuke, uh, elevated the name of Christ. He did all the stuff we would expect in a letter, but there were some very specific things he was targeting in 1 Corinthians. Quite frankly, then and now, some difficult subjects. Behaviors in church, the types of things that should be happening in church, orderly worship, how do we conduct ourselves, how do we, con- how do we expect others to conduct themselves. All of this was intended to encourage that church. In that letter, Paul spoke of visiting them. He talked about that here. I plan to visit you, but plans change. Because of that, Paul has already heard some murmurings. He's referencing that here. It goes on a little bit later as we move through the letter, but as you might imagine, he's probably received some letters from people in a church where people are kind of upset. You said you were going to swing by, and you you haven't been by, and you remember we were kind of hoping to see you, and you know we we were going to make a big deal, and we had a you know fatted calf or whatever, and you know you're not here. Yes, yes, I know. Believe it or not, I've been busy. And I'm not doing what I want necessarily. I'm doing what God wants. And that's sort of where he starts this. Um, making sure that, yes, good to see you. However, we need to cover a few things that clearly didn't sink in in my last letter. But Paul starts here with, ours is a God of comfort. He starts his letter with encouragement. We've talked about this before, but that's a really good policy. Anytime you're going to talk to people that you care for, especially if you need to do some 
criticism or uh, critique, encouragement, if you want to say that. You need to start being as encouraging as possible. You want them to know that you care. What Paul's talking about here is we are all in a good place, right? You, God will take care of us. Through the good and the bad, we know that that's all good. He uses the word comfort, but I think it's interesting as Paul defines it. When we think of comfort, when the Corinthians think of comfort, they're probably thinking of something much like we would think of, right? A lack of affliction, right? This chair is comfortable. People use that term all the time. This couch is very comfortable. What do we mean by that? There's nothing about this couch that offends me in any way, right? It's very relaxing. If you put a nail in the seat, nobody's going to sit down and say, it's comfortable. They'd say, no, it's not comfortable. There's a nail punching me in the rump in this couch. I don't want to sit here. It's not, I'm going to move to someplace better. It's not comfortable. So when we think of comfort, we're like, yeah, comfort, that's good. Like a hammock on a warm day, maybe a cool glass of lemonade, that's comfortable. Hiking in two feet of snow may be comfortable for some people. Not me. But comfort is as we define it ourselves. What Paul's talking about here is something transcending that kind of comfort, Right? Paul actually says, and this is right, I put the scripture up here, afflicted for our comfort. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. I mean, it's, there's no word tricks here. Paul's saying affliction is for our comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for our comfort. Now, he leaves out the word salvation there. Now, I don't want to get too heavy-handed with the word salvation. Like, you can't be saved without extreme discomfort. That's not what I'm saying. Affliction is not necessarily required. But I think we would all agree that when you're sitting on a comfortable sofa in the middle of a Sunday afternoon, the need of being saved from something is pretty far away. You feel pretty well together. Everything is okay. I'm here. I'm experiencing no pain. Whatever's going on outside these walls, not my problem. I'm going to drift off to sleep, get a nice long nap, wake up, have dinner, go to bed early. That's a wonderful Sunday afternoon. It's a comfortable Sunday afternoon. But if somebody came in and said, what can I save you from today? Your answer would probably be, nothing. (laughs) I'm right where I want to be. I don't want to be taken out of here. This is comfortable. Well, Paul's saying is, yeah, if you're comforted, it's for your comfort. But affliction drives us towards the need of salvation. If there's a nail in that chair, somebody can save you by pulling you out of that chair, taking that pain away. It reminds us of the need to be saved. But the bigger point here is basically if God's in control, we are comforted. We know this. This is what Paul is driving towards. We know God wants good for us, good for us. He told us that. And we know that God is sovereign. This means that all things must be good for us. Now, we may not understand that. We may think this is, I'm suffering, and it's undue suffering, and it's, it's this, that, and the other. And it may seem that way to the outside world a lot. A flood comes through the city, and it takes everybody's houses, believers or not. But believers should be able to go back to these first two bullets. I know God wants good for me, and I know that he's in control of even this flood. So how is this going to be good for me? That's why we get back into the Word. The Holy Spirit begins to move. We start to find out that maybe, maybe the... Maybe the house was, I was overly invested in that house. I need, I can cling to God in this time knowing that, yes, he's still there and he's still in charge. Paul wants them to remember this as the church grows. What the church of Corinth is suffering from is what a lot of churches today suffer from. More people start to show up. It was really good. Now it's getting a little bit more diluted. The new people want things a certain different way. I used to do it this way and I kind of like that. And infighting begins and people start prioritizing and little clicks form and this, that, and the other. 
And pretty soon, nobody's worried about suffering. They're trying to avoid it. We're trying to put up walls and keep the people out and the riffraff away. And can we keep it quiet in here? We've got a children's area. We've got this. We, we have, we're, we're trying to make sure this is all working the way we want it to. We want to be comfortable in the church. We want to be comfortable in our ministry. We want to be comfortable in our outreaches, comfortable in our food, comfortable in our giving. And we know that's good because God wants good for us. And I feel good, so that must mean it is good. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Church growth might hurt. I remember when I was younger, and I'd get like weird pains, like just wake up one day and like, man, my leg hurts, and it hurt for a day. And my parents or people that knew it would say, oh, those are growing pains. <laughs> growing pains. All right, your bones are stretching, growing so fast they hurt. I don't know if they were. I could just, I don't know. But growing pains is a term that's used a lot. There was a TV show called that, I believe, right? Like this is a known thing. The reason for this is as things grow, difficulty ensues. Your shoes don't fit anymore, but you can't afford new shoes, so now your shoes are a little too tight. Whatever. Bones and muscles stretching, joints expanding, cartilage being formed, all this stuff might hurt, but it's very necessary to live a full life as your body intends it to be. Your body is willing to do that. To grow. The church is no different. Everything is no different. But it's, it's an easy trap to say, ah, let's just worry about comfort, comfort, comfort. That's good. We'll, we'll manage it. We'll trust that God is in it because it's not hurting. That must mean that that's good. Paul references this in a stern way, referencing affliction in Asia. Are you curious about that affliction, what, what he's talking about? Aren't we all? There's really, really no specificity that I could find of the exact events that he's speaking of, right? Whatever this is going on that's in Asia that was so bad, but something happened and it was very clearly rough. Uh, I'm sure everybody here has dealt with something that's pretty bad. But the, the way Paul phrases this, I say uh, rough here is a little bit of an understatement, right? We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You know, I mean, I don't want to put too fine a point. Suffering is real even in, in, in America and in our modern life. But if you're engaged in, in mission work, you're reaching out for the cause of Christ, and you find yourself in the midst of that, utterly burdened beyond your strength that you despair of life itself. They wish they were dead. Indeed, they felt they'd received the sentence of death. They were going to get their wish. We're going to suffer and die. And good, because this is terrible. This is quite an affliction. This isn't a scuffed knee. Or we drank some local water and spent a little extra time on the toilet. Right? These are afflictions, don't get me wrong, but they're not the afflictions he's talking about. Now, I don't know. Perhaps it could have been they drank some bad water. In those days, maybe that would almost put you on the verge of death. I felt pretty sick before. But the description Paul gives here is something that seems almost like soul-wrenching. Like, I can't bear it. It's not just suffering. It's not just a nuisance. I, want to be, I don't want to be on this world anymore. I don't even want to contend with it. And it looks like we may get our wish. I may die of this. We may die. And that's probably for the best because it's so terrible. So it's very clear that mission work is no picnic in Paul's eyes. He's not saying, hey, while we were in Asia, we had a couple rough things where we had to borrow money. Or, you know, we had to eat a, a wild animal that was real stringy and didn't have much flavor and we didn't have any seasonings. That's not what he's talking about here. This is real, honest-to-goodness suffering. But what we hear from Paul is his confidence is not shaken. God will deliver and we can help. And this is where this gets very interesting, where it becomes, yes, God, all the way God, 100% God, but somehow still 100% Paul. After, after the peril of Asia, Paul's confidence isn't shaken. It sounds like a nightmare. 
They thought they were going to die. They wanted to die. But God delivered them and will deliver them. I love this line. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. That's not the end. Oh, yes, he, he, he pulled us through on that, as he always does. And I take great comfort in that. But there's still more deliverance to come. And I'm confident in that as well. And finally, Paul pleads for prayer as their part in this ministry. I mean, this is something we do a lot today. We always say, hey, I'm getting ready to go over here, going on a mission field. Uh, we just prayed for a bunch of missionaries. It's exactly what Paul's called us to do. These folks that are reaching out, that are going through potential afflictions, dealing with trying to find comfort, to rely on God. Our role in that, a big part of that role, prayer. Pray for them. Don't necessarily pray for their comfort. One of the first things that I remember here at this church, coming to Secret Church, was uh, it was about Vietnam. There were some missionaries in Vietnam. And they asked during Secret Church if we would pray for them. And they said, how, you know, and then they said, now here's how you can pray for us. Don't pray that our suffering will end. Pray that God's, the, 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 the love of Christ will increase regardless of what it takes. And I remember sitting at that table thinking to myself, I, I don't know. I don't know if, I know I should do it. And I agree with what you're saying, but this is difficult for me to pray for your suffering for Christ's behalf when we sit in a comfortable room with pizza. It seems disingenuous. That's the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what Paul's trying to let them realize. Okay, pray for us. In your time of prayer, when you sit down and you think about the suffering that these people are going through, we can't even pray for them by name. It's too dangerous. Not for them. They don't care. It's dangerous for the people they're ministering to. They'll go kill them. They'll leave the missionaries alone. They don't want any international trouble, necessarily. Some places don't care. But, but many don't. I've heard this from their own mouths. Oh, they won't kill us. They might deport us, but they won't kill us. But they'll slaughter everybody that's been coming to our church, which will absolutely cool anyone else trying to come because they don't want to die. They don't know Christ yet. They're not all in. So we say, pray for GB. Pray for CH because we don't want to give their names away. That's affliction. They're not telling us to pray for their comfort. They're saying pray for the people they're uh, witnessing to. And if they die for the cause of Christ, so be it. It's right where Paul's at. Praying for them isn't a stamp. Yes, we prayed for you. Boom. As you pray and you seek and you, you're like, I don't even know how to pray. Good. Pray about that. Get into the word. How should I pray for missionaries? How should, how, ask them. How should I pray for you? What would you like me to pray for you? A real missionary is probably not going to say, pray that you know maybe somebody gives us a, a big Bentley. Because I'd always love to have a Bentley. Say, I'm not going to pray for that. I mean, what are you talking about? Most of them are going to say, pray that God's word explodes. That this entire village is, is, is suddenly and miraculously drawn to Christ and a fire is lit that can't be put out. And if that means we're, we're bodies on the pyre to get the fire going, fine. But Christ is the reason we do it and that's why we're there. Now, about these murmurs. Can I see you in my office? That's the, that was the greetings. Now I'd like to talk to you in my office. <clears throat> Paul clarifies his own behavior and the way that he does this I think is brilliant. He, he, he does not boast in his ability to be a good person. He does boast in his goodness, but not his ability. He boasts through Christ. Now, this might seem a little bit difficult. I know that it's difficult for me because typically today I'd say, well, I'm terrible and I'm, I'm useless and nothing I do is good, right? Because I want to make sure Christ is in his proper place. What we see Paul saying is, yes, I'm, I'm no good. The things that I, I would do of my own volition would be terrible. But Christ is working through me, and because of that, good things happen 
from Paul's hands because of Christ. If it's good, it's credit to Christ. If it's bad, that's Paul's problem. He does boast in his goodness, but only through Christ. And this is really critical because what he's stating here is that this good behavior is a byproduct of salvation. Paul's not emulating salvation. Paul's not trying to appear good and saved. He is saved. And things are happening. Good things are happening by his hand. And he's been convicted to do these things. He's engaged. He's not an automaton. Paul's not a robot. Because of this, he's now tying this to his intentional delay. He realizes that the first letter he wrote will have ruffled feathers. We know this would have ruffled feathers then because it ruffles feathers now. And that's not even addressed to us. But you can imagine there are people that read that letter and said, he's talking about me. Everyone ever sat in the, in the, in the, heard a, a sermon that I've preached or something and said, I think he's talking about me. He, I told him that in confidence. I didn't want that coming out in the poll. And I don't say names. I never would do that. But you might feel that way. Typically, I'm not doing that. But you might feel that way. I felt that way, calling me out. Calling me out. When he wrote that letter to the church of Corinth, that's exactly what he was doing. Someone's like, he's calling me out. And everyone's like, yeah, he is. You're the one that does that. You're the one that's back here prattling on forever and ever and ever, not being quiet while they're trying to preach. So yeah, he told you to sit down and be quiet. Well, I'm offended. I I imagine half as offended as Paul was, seeing the name of Christ tarnished. But we read this letter, it's not even to us, and we feel the same degree of conviction. Paul knows there's going to be people mad about what he did the first time. They want to give him a piece of his mind when he comes back through. They're probably looking forward to visit so they could rattle his cage. But Paul says he expects there to be some change. He expects them to be repenting, moving forward, growing as a church, and he gives them extra time to do it. Then he states that his plans have changed as the Lord wills. And I love the way he says this, this whole yes and yes and no and no thing. It might be a little bit confusing. What it really simmers down to is if what we're doing is the will of God, there is no no. There isn't one. It's always yes. The will of God is a yes. It can't be thwarted. You might think that we could thwart it. We might think that what I want to do, I'm going to go, we're going to go over here and do this, you know, this mission. But, but the doors haven't been opened for us. And it's difficult. That must be a no. Is it of God for God? Then it's a yes. But it's difficult. Then do it. I don't have time. Make time. I don't feel well. Get over it. I don't know what to tell you. But if it's of God, the answer is yes. Now, I'm not saying that everything you see, every harebrained scheme we have is the will of God, which is exactly what Paul's point is here. Always a yes. Seems like there's a no here and there. I think we could all relate. It feels like sometimes God said no. To our desires, sometimes that's a no. The things I want, God's going to say no quite a bit because I don't always want what God wants. I am not God. Christ dwells within me, but I'm still a creature of sin. I'm still depraved. And my mind is not a slave to sin, but I still keep jumping back in the pool and getting off and drying out and I'm back again because I'm a fool. I'm fallen and I'm imperfect. My desires, sometimes there's going to be a no. Even if I think this desire is a good thing for the kingdom, God knows what's best for the kingdom. And it may not be me going into something feeling confident about it. It might be going into something that I'm really nervous about. But to God's will, it's always yes. Always. This is the point Paul's making. Paul's plans changing means God's plans are fulfilled. He's not making any apologies here. He's not saying, I really wanted to come, but, you know, it just didn't work out. He's saying, God didn't have it work out, and I'm fine with that. He's sovereign. He's in control. He said no. The reason he said no, I'm I'm convinced now, is because you guys needed more time. 
And that's the really subtle connective tissue here. Paul teaches that we can learn God's will for us. This isn't soothsaying or divination. I'm not saying we get a crystal ball out or we, we rub the Bible weird ways or, or open it up and put our finger down and that, then go to the dictionary. None of that. This is the Holy Spirit. God gave them this extra time. This wasn't Paul's idea. Paul's original idea was to come back and visit, but he didn't come back and visit. And he's hearing murmurs, oh, he's waffling. He doesn't know if he wants to come back or not. He can't make his mind up. He needs to get his act together. He needs to get himself a schedule and stick to it. Uh, this is embarrassing. He said he'd be back. I mean, Paul's refrained from coming once because he's convicted of the need for time. As Paul began to see things change, it became very evident to Paul that God does not want him back there. And then Paul didn't just say, okay, God, Paul said, why would that be, God? Let me spend time pondering your will. Why is this happening? What's going on here? And then Paul became convicted that I'm telling you, I didn't come back because you guys need extra time. And you might say, but I thought that was God's decision. Paul says, yes, but I'm in on that. I'm in on that. God's decision is for people to come to Christ by faith in him alone. But it's somehow my faith bestowed by God. But it's my faith. It's my faith. When, when God is, is in Paul's head and the Holy Spirit's working and he's sitting there in prayer and fasting and meditation, he's considering what's going on, the plans that he had, and he's watching his plans change and morph. Paul's confident that God's doing all this, but I want to understand what's going on. And I believe it's very clear. The Holy Spirit, the study of the Scripture became evident that they needed a, additional time. It was going to take them extra time than the time you allotted, Paul. Paul refrained from coming once, convicted of the need for time. Okay, they need time, then I'll come back later. But God's will changed Paul's plans into Paul's new plans. Paul is not a robot and sees this as working together with God. Those last two bullets, church, if there's anything that I will encourage you to do, it's as you see your, chance, or your plans change. Don't just fall back on the pillow of, well, I, you know, who knows what God's up to now. I guess I'll just go with the flow like a leaf in the wind. We're not called to be that way. We are not leaves in the wind of the Holy Spirit. We are creatures created in God's image, which means we get to commune in this. We want God to be providing the wind, but we can figure out where the wind's aiming us and try to figure out what we could do to navigate as the wind sends us over here. And who are we going to come by? And what can I do in the meantime? I don't just sit lifeless on the boat. What are you doing? I don't know. Wherever God's sending me, wherever he leads, I go. That is not what we're called to do. It's not what Paul's doing at all. Get engaged. Figure out what's going on in your life. See the things that God is doing. The yeses and the noes. What's a no? What does that mean? Why? What should I do? How should I approach that? How can I invest in that? How can I seek God's will out and do more for the people around me? So let's look at three things here that I think Paul's talking about. Focus is required. Kindness is crucial. And criticism is kindness. Focus is required. Paul starts the letter where he starts just about everything and, quite frankly, ends it as well. It's all about Christ and what he's done. Paul's efforts, Paul's travels, Paul's stories, Paul's apostleship, all of these amazing attributes of Paul are only good because of what Christ has done. Period. Paul claims no merit. The, the good works that he's done, he'll say, yes, I did good things. I did amazing things over here. And I live an upright lifestyle. Emulate me. As I emulate Christ. These things are emulations of Christ's perfection. Everything else is second. Paul's desires, the needs of the church, the needs of the world, hunger, thirst, all second to Christ. We live to carry out his will on earth 
And Paul wants to be sure this is never forgotten. He opens the letter this way with intent. Before I start, I want you to know, if Christ is not at the very tip top of everything that you do, the, the prime lens by which everything is brought into focus, stop, fix that, come back to the letter. I'll tell you the same thing. If you do not know who Christ is, if all this sounds like a good idea, or you think he was a soothsayer or a wise individual or a prophet or just a man but a smart guy who did a lot of amazing things, you've missed the plot. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was fully God, fully man, a part of the Trinity. He created the earth. He is the Creator who came to earth to dwell with us, lived a perfect life, and did something we could not do so that we can spend eternity with God. That's better than a prophet. It's better than just some wise guy. That's what Paul's talking about. This is more than just a job we do for a while before we get to heaven. We're supposed to be convicted and on fire, burning with passion for the lost because that's what Christ said we are here to do. Fine, you don't want to take me home to heaven? Let's go out and talk to the lost about Christ. I'll do it until you come back or I die. But I can't wait. But I'll keep going. Seems, seems a little confusing, but that's it. It's, it needs to be super important, and that's where he starts. And then kindness is crucial. People need to know that we care. Everybody, I'm sure, has dealt with people at companies or maybe at restaurants that are doing their job, but you can't tell if they care. Here's this, here's that. Thank you. Great. Whatever else. They're not really invested. It's okay. It's a job. But there's no real connection there. They don't seem happy. It seems like maybe you're bothering them. Things like that. If we don't care, then we have the problem. When it comes to our ministry, going through the motions, doing the work means nothing. Now, granted, work is important. Faith without works is dead. So as we are saved, we're going to be called to good works. It's going to be happening. But if we move out to do these good works and we're like getting drug along like that dude on the boats, like, oh, this again. I'm just so tired of coming here. I got to pray with you again. I got to read scripture again. Uh, I just want a day off. People will know that. You can sense it. I'm sure every one of us can relate to having to deal with somebody that just wasn't there. They didn't care. They might have done a decent job of what they were called to do, but you, there was no personal connection. Certainly no relationship. It was just going through the, going through the motions. Here's your money. Here's your change. Have a good day. Yeah, I'll bet, right? Not that you really care because you don't. We need to be better than that. If we don't care, then we have the problem. And if we do care, then we need to tell people. We care for people by our actions and our words. If somebody's got a problem, if somebody needs something, we want to help them. In this case, Paul is getting ready to minister to this church that he cares for deeply. He wanted to come back, didn't get a chance to come back. They may not know that he cares. He's trying to make this very clear. I do care about you. You are important to me. I treasure you. I pray for you. We all pray for you. People all over the place are praying for you. I want what's best for you. If we care, we got to tell people. The issue with the world is a lack of Jesus, not a lack of good behavior. We don't need people to act saved or be good. That's not our call, church. We are not here to enforce sinless living on the world. That's Christ's job. We are here to tell people about Jesus and the freedom that he brings. Unparalleled freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from hopelessness. The world's rife with all three of those things. Jesus lets us get out of that. Will you act better? Paul says, yeah. 
Paul acts way better than he used to. He's doing that. He's making good choices. But why? Because Christ is changing him. He's renewing his mind. He's renewing his spirit. The Holy Spirit is with him every second of every day, encouraging Paul, steering him to make better decisions as long as he relies. When we're, being, when we're talking to other people and we want to be kind to them, it's really easy to be kind if we approach them saying, they don't know the good news. If you were on the Titanic and somebody was not aware that there was a lifeboat, and you knew that there was a lifeboat, and they were crying, I'm going to die. I'm so sad. Would you say, there's a lifeboat here. Get on the lifeboat. Or would you say, quit crying. Nobody wants to see you cry. The whole boat's sinking. I mean, get over yourself. Look, there's already 20,000 people in the water dead. I mean, who cares? No, we'd say, get on the boat. We wouldn't tell them to be quiet. And it's not so bad. I mean, some people have to die in warm water. The shock will probably kill you before you even realize you're drowning. Oh, well, thanks for that, you know. This is what Christians do a lot. Oh, I'm going to die. Hey, I'll pray for you. Standing in the boat. I'll pray for you. Can I get on the boat? No, I'll pray for you. You don't have a suit. You can't come on the boat. The suit's only in here. What are we doing? People are going to say he doesn't care. They're not kind. That's, that's a terrible thing. They're like we're in some ivory tower. We have secret knowledge. That's not true. Paul knows one thing. Now, Paul invented Christian theology. His writings, I mean, it came from God. Don't get me wrong. But if without Paul, we wouldn't be talking about this. He wrote Romans. He gives credit to Christ. What do you need to know, Paul? What's the one thing I need to know? Uh, who Jesus is. Well, I'm talking about theology. <laughs> you said one thing. Know who Jesus is. After that, we'll talk about all this other stuff. But you've got to know who Jesus is. Get in the lifeboat. Then we can talk about how you're dressed and how we should lower it or raise it or the way that we sail it or how the oars work or the rudder. But we're not going to yell at you like, you don't even know how rudders work. You can't get on this boat. Get in the boat. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. We'll figure all that out as we go. But if people outside only see us berate or critique their lifestyles or their choices, that's a bad deck chair to sit in when you're dying. Don't you want to die in a nicer suit? They're going to figure that out real quick and want nothing to do with us. So we'll let you in the boat. Heck with them. I don't want to listen to what they're saying. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. Kindness is crucial. Then, criticism is kindness. People, do, people need to know the truth. Oh, wait, it didn't change. Emma, can you skip it? That's the... <clears throat> or did, there we go. <laughs> Slide change error. Yes, indeed. Let's see if we're, if we're back. Probably not. That'd be too simple. So like I was saying, criticism is kindness. Don't pull punches or skirt the issue. Um, number, number one, Jesus. Number two, kindness. Number three, criticism. It's important. We do want to rebuke and correct. If they know Jesus and, we, and they know we care, now let's be honest. Because there are things that we could do to improve. There are things that, that we could do to draw closer to God. To feel more in touch with God. To spend more time communing with God. To be more effective in our ministries. That's true. Be frank and honest as this shows respect. If anyone's ever been, well, you're doing pretty good. We joke about this a lot with parents and kids. You know, you want to encourage your kids. And they come in with like a piece of art. And it's like, oh, my gosh. That's, I guess that's a drawing or something. Like, that's a car going up a hill. Like, I'm not saying that does not look at all like a car. You are a very poor artist and have a long way to go. Please destroy that and try again. That's not caring, and it's not kind. It doesn't point to Christ. So we say, well, you could, there's some work you could do here. 
Um, I see now that you explain it's a car. It's kind of abstract. But if it's something you're passionate about, how can I help you and encourage you to not be so bad at it? We wouldn't say that necessarily, but that's what we're doing. It's the same here, right? If somebody's very new to the faith and it's like, hey, here's the laundry list of things that we expect out of good Christians. This is what bearing good fruit looks like. That's not very kind criticism. And it's overly direct and, quite frankly, confusing. It doesn't sound... It's not focused on Christ. It's focused on behavior. And it's not very caring or kind because they don't even understand necessarily what's going on yet. But be frank and honest. It shows respect when you say, here's the reality. Here's what's going on. I'm not going to sugarcoat everything. I want to tell you the truth. And I, since we have a relationship, I can do this without you hopefully feeling so upset. Will it always work? No. You can focus it on Christ. You can be kind and caring. The moment you give criticism, some people put their hands up and they're out of there. I'm not going to listen to that, not from you. I'm not going to listen to some punk kid thinks he knows everything. I don't care if it's true or not. I'm not going to hear from you. Okay. Don't, don't hear from me. Hear from Christ. <laughs> I ain't read that Bible. I don't need to, right? Ah, there it is. But once again, that's none of my business, right? At some point, I can do what I can do. Should it always be done? Yes. I know this because Paul always does it. If you read any of his letters... <laughs> It kind of go the same way. Greetings to you. Christ is awesome. Things have been going pretty good. Covet your prayers. However, I want to see you in my office. There's a few things. That I got a lot of problems with you people, and you're going to hear about it because it's important. Not because he hates them, because he loves them. And he gets right to the point. Why? Because it's, it shows respect. I know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. Knock it off. Here's why. So what about us? Keep Paul's intro in your mind when you interact in life. This tiny little, ch- tiny little chapter might feel like, that's a lot, that's too difficult. No, you could distill this down. When you interact with people, good, bad, or otherwise, think about this concept. Keep Christ at the forefront. Let's be kind. Let's show that I care. But I'm going to have a frank and honest conversation. Show respect to that. Good, bad, or otherwise. If things are going great, same protocol applies. This is really nice. God has provisioned something for us that's extreme comfort. And this comfort is for our comfort. Affliction comes, we'll deal with that. Thank you for being a part of this. Thanks for making this happen. Uh, look at these two or three things. I think it can go from here. It's going to be great. Even good, even good conversations can use this same kind of idea. Keep your priorities straight. I, I'll tell you right now, it's really easy to, for me to be able to single out behaviors or specific actions, sins, if you will, that I don't like. And I want you to fix that. Quiet down over there. Stand up straight, pull up your pants, drive flat faster, drive slower, whatever. I want it different. But that's not my priority. My priority is representing Christ. If my priority is getting somewhere fast and I'm cutting people off and giving them the, the one-finger salute to let them know I'm disapproving of their driving, that's putting me well above Christ. That's not a good idea. It's going to tarnish my witness. If I turn around and say, but God loves you, and I'd like to talk further about yourself, I should be like, oh, are you kidding me? This gave me the finger, cut me off. I got my kids in the car. We, they spilled juice. I'm not going to listen to a word you have to say. Be honest and kind and exude the care that Christ showed. You know, we're, we're talking a lot about Paul because Paul's talking about Paul through Christ. The good news for us is with Christ, who's still alive, still at the right hand of the Father, still in charge, still saving, actively engaged today, this very second, the stuff that Christ has done for Paul, he can and will do for us. And pray for those you engage, even if it seems non-confrontational. Church, you know, we, we, we pray a lot every Sunday. And a lot of times we pray for people that are in trouble, uh, need prayer in the mission field. 
We pray for God's will in their lives. A lot of times we pray for people that we've had struggles with. Struggling with my neighbor. They're not getting it, or we're in a fight, or work is tough. We pray for these sorts of things. But imagine taking notes of the, every single person you meet, just written down their first initial throughout one day. Everybody you meet, even the great interactions where you leave with a smile on your face, thinking, man, what a great person. And pray for those people too. Paul loves the church of Corinth. He prays for them and with other people all the time. That's something we can do starting today. Everybody we run into, pray for them. And don't just pray that things will keep going okay, they'll just stay comfortable. Pray that Christ will continue to be at work in their life if they, if they claim Christ. Or pray that, that Christ will begin to, to change their lives. The Holy Spirit will change them forever. And see if God doesn't start to put you in a position to get to talk to them. Or you see them when they're really down and your next interaction isn't so good. And they're like, I just feel like the whole world's against me. You say, well, I'm a, I already pray for you, but I'll pray for that. And see if they say, pray, you pray for me? Like, I pray for you because it's what I was called to do. It's in the Word. I don't do it because I'm good. I do it because I'm saved. It's a small thing to me, maybe, but it can make a big impact. The Bible says that. Huh. Boom. Inroad on a conversation. I pray that Paul's example here will set a tone for us as we move into this week and beyond this week. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, I am uh, so thankful for the word and the power of your word, Lord. I pray that any words that I shared today pale in comparison to your word, Lord. It is so incredibly awesome, uh, incredibly clear, incredibly capable. Lord, and I know that I'm none of those things without you. So uh, I'm thankful for your word. Uh, and beyond that, Lord, I am thankful for your work on the cross. I'm thankful for salvation. I'm thankful for how simple it is, how readily available it is, Lord, that we don't need to fill out paperwork or, or wait in a line for approval, Lord. Uh, those who you have predestined you for new, and here we are, your children at your calling, Lord. As we seek to share the good news and we seek to work as a church to grow, Lord, help us take these principles that we talked about today that are in your word and apply them rightly in our lives. Get our priorities straight. Be kind, be caring, but be honest and, and critical when need be about the things that we can do better for you and the things that uh, we are doing as well as we can for you, Lord. Thank you so much for all that you do for us as a congregation, Lord. And if there's anybody out there right now who's trying to make heads or tails of this and just can't get from A to Z or whatever, Lord, I pray that you will connect us up, Lord. Have them reach out to us. We want to pray with them. We want to talk with them. We want to counsel them as best we can, Lord. Point them at you through your word so they understand exactly who and who's there.